Hello and welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. My name's Darren and I'm here with Faith. Hi. Pastor Faith. And we will get to the sermon in just a little bit, but we wanted to make some time and space to talk about something special that we've been having on Sundays. And it's a new song that Pastor Faith, you and your husband, Josh, wrote, and we've shared it with our community. Tell us a little bit about it. What's the name of it? Yeah. And where did it come from? Yeah, so it's called We Need You. Um, and I, I'm going to root this in 1 Corinthians 2 when Paul says, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Um, the, the first thing that was written for this song was the beginning of that bridge section that says, We don't need better plans. We don't need clever thoughts. We need your Spirit, O oh God. We don't want the wisdom of man. We want we want a display of God's power, which is really what the world needs. They don't need to see a show, or even in the area of worship, they don't need to hear good music. We need to see a display of the power of God. So it came from that heart cry. And then the beginning of the song kind of sets up this space where we invite Holy Spirit, we open our hearts, we clear out all the distractions, the things that get in the way and then just simply cry out for more of Him. And it's this this longing to be a, a space where the Spirit would rest mm-hmm. as a community. Yeah, I love that. That's such a the heart and core value of Garden Church. Exactly. Knowing that the Spirit is present, like He's welcome to the party and we get to celebrate. And I so appreciate the beauty and creativity that you've been cultivating, not only with worship, but just something that we can invite the rest of our community into. And, and it's so cool when, when uh, in the recording of this song, it's the first time that we shared it. And it's like people have been singing it for weeks. <laughs> and it was just such a cool thing to experience. And so we're so happy for those of you that have experienced that with us on a Sunday morning. And we want to see just more original songs being birthed from this place um, that you're talking about, just being saturated in the Holy Spirit. So we are welcoming you to stick around after the sermon where you can hear a live recording of the song, We Need You, and I hope it blesses your heart. Garden Church Podcast. We are living in a moment that requires us to pause. Not just to move on to the next thing, but to actually pause and lament, to grieve, to take inventory, pursue justice, and to change. We can't just get through this time hoping that it will pass. This is a moment we have to steward as the people of God to bring about real change. We need to listen. We need to um, listen to the pain of our brothers and sisters who are hurting. As many of us are grieving the death of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery and the many countless lives that have been lost in our country. For some of us, we want to just get past this. And I know well-meaning Christians are saying, let's get past this and get to unity. Let's get past this and get to forgiveness. But we can't just get past this to do good biblical things. 
Unity is good. Forgiveness is good. This is a moment we have to pause to lament and grieve the pain and feel the pain and allow those of us that have anger to allow the anger to come out in helpful ways in order for us as a people and for us as a country to heal. We will not change if we don't allow these things to impact us. We won't change individually, we won't change nationally, we won't change unless we pause and listen and allow these things to sink deeply into our hearts and cause things to move and do something different. For some of us, we're just catching up to the issues of racism and the racial injustice that have been going on for centuries in our country. For some in our community, this has been lived and experienced for generations. And so we recognize that we have a diverse community and we need to listen to our brothers and sisters who um, are experiencing this in very tangible ways. I wanna say we can't make this about politics. Now I know it's political. We have to learn to navigate this time with our allegiance first and primarily associated and under the king and his kingdom, Jesus Christ. We must recognize that our posture in this world matters at this moment. And how we engage in this world matters. How we engage in the world must reflect the way of Jesus. The question I have today that I want to answer is how might Jesus direct us to live in light of what is happening in this moment? How might Jesus direct us to live our everyday life in light of what's going on in the world? And for that, I want to preach on a very familiar passage, a parable of the Good Samaritan. But let me begin in prayer. Father, would you allow this time to be filled with the revelation from your Holy Spirit. I pray that your word would sink deeply inside of us and allow us to not react, but to respond, to change, and to move forward in your way of life. I bless you, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. In Luke chapter 10, verse 25, we read this in the Gospel of Luke. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? Jesus replied, and how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. The greatest commandment is revealed by Jesus in this passage when he's questioned by a teacher of a law, an expert. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. This is the summary of Jesus' teaching of the kingdom of God. In fact, in John's gospel, in John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35, he says this to his disciples, 
A new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. And then he says in verse 35, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So after the teacher of the law answers the question correctly, giving uh, a perspective of what the summary of all of the Old Testament looks like, to love God, to love your neighbor as yourself, then the teacher of the law, it says in verse 29, but he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? neighbor. The lawyer wants to know what's the bottom line? What's the lowest common denominator? Give me the list to live by to ensure I'm part of the in crowd. And when the lawyer asked who is my neighbor in first century context, there was already a common understanding, an unspoken um, rule about what a neighbor was, who a neighbor was, and what it looked like to be neighborly. In the first century context, a neighbor was someone who looked like you. A neighbor was someone who talked like you, who had the same accent like you, who dressed like you, who acted like you, who shared the same values and culture that you had, who had the same political and religious and spiritual views as you. They voted for the same people as you. Those were your neighbors. The Pharisees went even further and said uh, uh, they believed that a neighbor was simply a a practicing Jew, someone who embodied the Jewish faith like the Pharisees, someone who obeyed the 613 commands and the additional 1,500 commands of the oral tradition, somebody who embodied their faith, a practicing Jew. So that excluded Samaritans, that excluded tax collectors, that excluded the sinners, that excluded anyone that, that didn't show up or practice Sabbath. Brothers and sisters, there was a limitation on the resources of their love because this is about how do you obey the commands of God? How do you love God and love your neighbor? And if you qualify a neighbor as not those kinds of people, then the resources of your love are exempt from them. The resources of your love are exempt from those kinds of people. Those who aren't like you. Those people aren't your neighbor. And that's the backdrop. That's the context and the backdrop for what Jesus is about to do. He then gives a famous parable. It's called the Good Samaritan. Let's read this again and catch up with what Jesus is trying to do. So Jesus tells a story. Who is my neighbor, the teacher asks. Jesus says, a man coming down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. So here's the story. Let me set up the scene. There's a man coming down from Jerusalem, most likely um, 
He was fall, uh, worshiping God in the temple and he's going to Jericho and he gets attacked by robbers. He's beaten, he's stripped of his clothes which would have been an uh, identification for anyone coming by and he's left for dead. He is in pain, he is in suffering. He has been robbed of his dignity and identity and two characters come into the story and these characters are the heroes of the Jewish community. They're leaders in the religious and the political establishment, they would have been seen as holy men and men of God. They would have been seen as full of integrity, men who definitely would reflect the religious beliefs of Judaism into the world. But these men, when they see the man pass by on the other side, when they see the man, they pass by on the other side. And may I suggest something to you right now, that sometimes our position in life, sometimes our political affiliations, our religious beliefs disable us from seeing things the way God wants us to see them. Sometimes our position, our experience, our political affiliations, whether we're Democrat or Republican or something in between. Sometimes our theology and our religious beliefs disable us from seeing the world and people the way God wants us to see the world and people. Remember, everyone processes life through their own worldview and their own personal experience. And our job as disciples of Jesus Christ is to take on the task of reinterpreting life through the lens of the kingdom of God. And we'll get to that in a second. So these two men, they pass by on the other side. Something about their religion, their theology causes them to distance themselves from this man's pain. They remain detached from this man's need and they remain disconnected from this man's suffering. Their religion, their belief, their beliefs keep them from embodying God's way of life to others specifically to the urgent need of the moment. Sometimes our beliefs and our religion keep us from embodying God's way of life when there's a missional need in a moment. They know the greatest command they know that the greatest commandment is to love God and to love their neighbor, but they have distorted the application and failed to live the commandment. The parable reveals that sometimes we can be right in our thinking and wrong in our application. Are you with me? Let that sit in for a moment. The parable now continues. And I wanna say that this parable, if you were reading it in the first century as a Jewish person, would have offended you. The word would have triggered all sorts of anger 
and outrage. It would have triggered a a political response, a religious response, a moral response, because it would have been upsetting to hear what's about to happen. People are often telling me that Jesus wasn't political, but he was. You just don't expect it. You see, Eugene Peterson says, the gospel of Jesus Christ is more political than anyone imagines, but in a way that no one guesses. Jesus was very political. He was very subversive in how we engaged in the world around him. He would use language and stories to disrupt the positions held by the religious and political establishments of his day. This parable is one of the greatest examples of him doing that. The story is a priest, someone who is in upper nobility, upper class nobility, and a Levite, middle class religious leader. Both represent the Jewish community. Now in the progression of the priest and the Levite, the next should be a Jewish lay person, or maybe even a Jewish woman, or maybe even a Jewish sinner. But what comes next is so upsetting that you probably didn't hear the rest of the parable. Luke chapter 10, verse 33, it talks about the priest and then the Levite, and then it says, but a Samaritan. But a Samaritan. Samaritan pops out. Samaritan. All of a sudden you're triggered. It's a derogatory word in the first century Jewish community used to insult people. Jesus is called both demon-possessed and a Samaritan as an insult to his, his life and ministry. Samaritans were hated by the Jewish community in the first century, especially the religious leaders like an expert in the law, a lawyer, which is the person asking the question. And this hatred goes back many generations. In fact, there was an ancient historical feud between the Samaritans and the Jews. You see, when the Assyrians conquered and colonized the northern part of Israel, they mixed with the Jewish community and created a new race, half Assyrian, half Jewish. That half Jewish and half Assyrian became a Samaritan. And the Samaritan mixed Assyrian religious worldviews and practices with Jewish religious worldviews and practices. And so the Jews considered them to be pagans. So Samaritans were heretics, religious heretics. They were corrupt and immoral. The Jews and the Samaritans hated, hated each other for over 700 years at the time that Jesus tells this story, there was this ancient hatred and anger. In fact, there was a season where the Jewish community tried to um, ethnically cleanse the Samaritans with holy war. The Jews wanted to wipe out the Samaritans. And so when Jesus names the next character in the story as a Samaritan, he's bringing to light issues that were very present in the first century, especially in the Jewish context. The first century um, Jews hated the Samaritans. They created religious rules around how they interacted. They divided their, their land. You would always go around Samaria, never through Samaria. In other words, in the first century context, when Jesus names the Samaritans, he's highlighting a first century form of racism and he shows the hypocrisy 
of the religious establishment. He calls out the systems of power that were created to bring people to the presence of God that have now divided people and created uh, forms of racism and divide in everyday life. Now, I know you don't have to believe this, but this is the context of the Samaritans and Jewish community. There was, uh, at the time Jesus writes this, discrimination against each other for hundreds of years. The Jews hated the Samaritans and the Samaritans hated the Jews. This was a religious prejudice, a political prejudice, an ideological prejudice, an institutionalized hatred. It would be like Jesus today, or Jesus saying back then, Samaritan lives matter. In a context where a community hated Samaritans, Jesus is bringing to light waking people up to an issue that is at the the heart of the community he was in. He's highlighting an issue, calling to fact that we are all brothers and sisters and there there are groups of people that are hurting and until black lives matter, all lives don't matter. And we, we can argue about the movement and the message, and some of us just want to lump it into an organization. And I understand the nuances of all of this, but right now, what you have to recognize is Jesus is showing up in a way that was um, subversive and countercultural to the religious establishment of his day. He is, he is forcing the people that are listening to take inventory of the condition of their hearts to ensure that love is expressed equally to all people, including your enemies, to the Jewish community. Are you with me? Now, don't get lost in this because I want you to look now at what Jesus requires of the church, what does love look like? What does love look like? Uh, What does love look like and what does love express? And so this is what happens. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. When uh, he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. It's the Samaritan that reveals what it looks like to embody the greatest command of loving God and loving your neighbor. This is so shocking because it's the heretic who is the hero of the story. What the Samaritan does is shows us what love looks like when it's embodied. The Samaritan's actions are perhaps a model for how we might engage in the world around us today. The question I have is what does love require? And I think the Samaritan reveals a couple of points I wanna give you. First of all, it says that the Samaritan as he traveled came where the man was. Love requires proximity. Love requires us to come near to the pain to show up and learn uh, what 
is causing the, the pain of our brothers and sisters around us. We must cross the chasm of hostility knowing that our presence means something and your presence in the situation on the front lines said something to the people around you. We must get near to the pain of the hurting communities that we see. We must get near those who are suffering in order to understand what is required of us. We must educate, we must learn, but we must get near. We must move from standing at a distance to getting near. Love requires proximity. We can't just insulate ourselves from a distance and curate social media and news articles that help perpetuate the same belief systems. We must get away from that and step into relationship with those who are suffering and in pain. Always, this is what Jesus reveals, that he leaves the 99 and goes after the one. He is someone who is, whatever we do for one of of the least of these, reveals our love to the world. We must understand that love requires us to get near. Love requires proximity. Are you with me? I realize as I'm teaching, and I'm sure some of you are feeling frustrated, and I I want you to be frustrated because we need to hear this. I want you to wake up to what's going on because the church, just a side note, the church during the civil rights movement was the epicenter of the movement. People would go to church and then go out to peacefully protest. The the leaders of the civil rights movement were pastors of churches and I believe that in this moment we have to recognize that the church needs to pivot, needs to change, needs to be on the forefront of justice and at the very minimum we must get near. We must be near the pain. The second thing and I think this is so important the Samaritan reveals something. You see, the leaders, the, the Levite and the priest, they see the man and go on the other side. It says that he got near the man and then it says he saw him. When he saw him, love requires seeing. Love requires us to see and to hear what people are experiencing so much of the gospel of John, including the letters and the epistles of John and the last letter, the revelation of Jesus uh, written by the, the gospel writer John talks about how we see the world. I believe when, when it comes to Christianity, we need to see things with new eyes. We need to see things the way um, the kingdom of God ex- ex- sees things. And what I mean by that, it comes from John chapter three, verse three. Jesus tells Nicodemus, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. If we are going to be Christian, if we are going to be disciples of Jesus, we have to see the kingdom. We have to see life through the kingdom. We have to see people through the lens of Jesus that we are all brothers and sisters, that the children of God are everywhere and our task is to see them the way God sees them. We need to see the world through the lens of the kingdom of God, through a new perspective. And I can't help but think right now that many of us have a perspective that is uh, tinted through the lens of the Democratic Party or the Republican Party or leftist ideals or right conservative ideals. And I can't help but but think that as as human life is being um, fought for, we make it a political issue when it's not a political issue. It's about the kingdom of God. 
Racism is evil. And it is a form of evil that is corrupting hearts and programs and institutions. And we must address this as people of God. We must stand against it and stand with our brothers who are mo- and sisters who are most effective. And we must change our perce- perspective not to associate ourselves first with pr- uh, party loyalty, but with the kingdom of God. And that means our perspective needs to change. And I know this is gonna frustrate you, but I'm not apologizing for frustrating you. We need to see the world through the lens of Jesus and his kingdom. Love requires us to see things, to see in the way that Jesus sees. When he sees this man, it says that the Samaritan took pity on him and he went and he bandaged his wounds, he put oil and wine on him and he put his man on his donkey and brought him to an inn to take care of him. You see, love requires a response. Love requires action. The Samaritan gets near gets close, sees the issues, and responds to the issues with compassion. He gets his hands dirty, bandaging the wounds of his brother on the side of the road. He travels and takes him to an inn, and he puts the man in his position. Now, in the first century, a man walking next to a donkey is a servant. A man on the donkey is the master. What you see is the Samaritan trades places with the person in need, and that word compassion is to feel deeply. Fred Rogers Jr. says, being moved in our depths by others' experiences is responding in a way that intends to ease their suffering or promote their flourishing. Compassion is the greatest characteristic of our God. It is the divine nature and how he acts towards creation. The religious folks want to talk about compassion as a religious idea, as a theological idea. And the religious folks, they don't get down off their donkey. They walk away on the other side. In other words, their relationship with God doesn't impact their relationship with their brother or sister in need. But to love God, one must love their neighbor. You cannot separate the resources of your your love from people in need because there is no disconnect. It is all connected. How you love your brothers and sisters is a direct reflection of how you love God and vice versa. The summary of Jesus' teachings, the fulfillment of Christian life, the way we are to live as citizens of the kingdom of God is to live a life of compassion. For Jesus, compassion is not just an individual virtue, but a sociopolitical paradigm, expressing his alternative vision for life in community. It is a vision for life embodied in the movement that came into existence around Jesus. Compassion, in other words, is a way of interacting, a way of living, a way of seeing the world around you. It's doing something about the need. It's that you um, it's not what happens if I don't, what happens to this person if I don't do something for them. And it's what happens to me if I don't do something for them. It is a, the disposition that followers of Jesus must take to live compassion, to live out compassion. By this, the world will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. The last thing that he does, and I think it's really important, it says he, he takes him to the innkeeper and he says, look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any expense you may have. 
The Samaritan reveals to us that love requires sacrifice. Love requires sacrifice. The Samaritan didn't just provide mercy for a moment. He provided justice. He came to ensure that the man would not carry on any other debt, that the pain and suffering would be healed, and he came back to ensure that this man's need would be covered, that the debt would be paid, that extra costs would be cared for, and that this, the Samaritan shares his resources to ensure his wholeness and his peace and his complete healing. This is about the Samaritan sharing equity, giving equity. This is about journeying with somebody for the long haul. This is about a kind of love that is sacrificial. This is what's required. Love uh, looks like getting close. Love requires proximity. Love requires seeing. Love requires um, response, but love also requires sacrifice. Love requires a a cost. It must cost you something to walk with someone else who's suffering. Jesus finishes the story and then he flips the question on the teacher of the law. The teacher wants to know who who is my neighbor? And Jesus flips it in verse 36 and he says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robber? And the teacher of the law, the expert, couldn't even say the word Samaritan because he hated him so much. That's what most people believe. Scholars, he wouldn't utter the word. But instead he identifies the Samaritan as the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. Remember, the question is about how do I inherit eternal life? How do I live the life that is blessed? How do I embody God's way of life here and now on earth as it is in heaven? And Jesus, and then the question was about justifying who his neighbor was. And Jesus' response for embodying eternal life was to live a life of love, to live like the Samaritan in the story lives. The question is not who is my neighbor. The question is who needs the resources of my love? Who needs the resources of my love, which in fact are a direct connection to the resources of God's love? Who needs to know that God is for them today? Who needs to know that God is with them in their pain and in their suffering? Who needs to be reminded that justice has come and is coming? Who needs to recognize that the great liberator liberates those who are oppressed and will eventually liberate all who are oppressed? Who has been oppressed? Who has been marginalized? Who is in pain? Who needs the love of a neighbor to lift them up, to hold them up, and to walk with them in their suffering until healing fully comes. Because love requires proximity, love requires seeing, love requires response and action, and love requires sacrifice. So brothers and sisters at the Garden Church, let us be known by our love. Wherever you find yourself on the political spectrum, wherever you find yourself today, if you are a Garden Church member, if you are a follower of Jesus. May I encourage you with 1 John chapter 3, verse 18. Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with action and in truth. In other words, let's not just love with our theology. Let's just not love with our positions, 
let's not just love with our Instagram posts or Facebook uh, spreads, <laughs> Facebook feeds, whatever it's called. Let's love with our life. Let's love with our action. Let's love with our truth that's found in Jesus. Um, my prayer for you is that you would be known by love and that you would live as a model for the world, that you would engage in the world like the Samaritan. Let's pray. Father, I bless my brothers and sisters and I ask that you would increase our capacity to love. Allow us to embody your love and your character in a way that reveals the goodness, the kindness, the generosity, the justice, and the care and concern that you have for those who are suffering, those who are hurting. And Lord, I pray that our church would be unified, that we would be unified around the risen Lord Jesus, and that we would come together as one body and love well in the name of the risen Lord Jesus Christ and all God's people said. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit garden.church.